Well, good morning. If I've never met you before, my name is Matt. I'm the other pastor here, and uh, I'll be taking the service from here on out. I see Ben left me with a sweet 32 minutes, so uh, thank you, Ben. Um, so I'm a little bit under the weather. That's why Ben was out here before. Um, and it's uh, just to appreciate the irony of the situation, it was a couple weeks ago that I was looking at our calendar for January, you know, uh, Ben's calendar, my calendar, our preaching calendar, and I noticed that not only did he have Christmas Eve services and you know, all the stuff that goes along with that, but he had the first three preaching weeks of January, too. And I'm shaking my head. I'm like, Ben, why did you do this? You're going you're gonna to work yourself so hard that you're going to get sick. <laughs> and so I offered to take this weekend, and it, it hit me last Sunday. I started to feel just a little bit achy, and then flu set in, and I, I destroyed the flu. I'm telling you, that flu lasted one day, and I was feeling better, but then the infection, the, the upper respiratory, whatever stuff, infection came, and yesterday, I was sitting in the doctor's office when my wife finally made me go, and <clears throat> they got me on the breathing machine. They've got, they got chest x-rays. It's literally 25 hours ago, I was sitting in the, de- the doctor's office wondering if I'd be able to stand up here today. And I'm like, okay, God, if you really want me on that stage tomorrow, you know, if you want to do a miracle or something, and I got a pack, So that, that, that works too. So it's, it's an honor to be with you here today. Um, so yesterday I was you know, kind of joking around with myself, knowing what the topic was going to be, saying, God, if you want to toss me a miracle here. Uh, but my question for you is, have you ever asked for a miracle? Have you ever, at least, or maybe to make it even a little bit more watered down, have you ever just wished for a miracle to happen? And then maybe if you're more of the religious type, have you ever actually, you know, closed your eyes and said a prayer to God asking Him to do a miracle for you or for someone else? And how did that work out? I'm guessing that everyone in this room has at least wished for a miracle to happen. If you've gone through college exams, you've wished for a miracle to happen, right? At different times, different phases of life, you've wished for miracles to happen. Now, before we get in the whole God level of things and, and um, you know, get into our topic for today, I want to bring it down a level and just bring it into a common way that you and I can even think about it. Um, if you were able to do anything, what would you do? If you could perform miracles, what would you do? Uh, and the, re- the reason I asked the question, it'll serve a point in a moment, but the thing is, if, if I could do anything, if I could do miracles, I know what I would do. Or to, to phrase it more succinctly, I know what I would not do. I would not wake up in the morning and make breakfast because breakfast would make itself. Hams, eggs, pancakes every single day. It would never get old with ham, ham, eggs, and pancakes. Throw in some bacon, too. Absolutely. I would not make breakfast. You know what I would not do? I would not tie my shoes. And I'm not talking about Velcro. Right? My shoes, they would tie themselves. Or on a more serious note, you know, I think of the loved ones in my life, what what good things I would do for them. I think of some, some things that happened this last year, and I'd say, you know what, when it comes to my family, my friends, people I know, not one of them is going to have to, to die before they're ready and before they reach a, or, uh, an old age. If I think of my family, my friends, not one of them is going to have to worry about financial things because if anything comes up, I'll just fix it. I'll, I'll go in and give them whatever they need. None of my nieces and nephews would have to wrestle with developmental or social disabilities. 
None of my, none of my uh, extended family would ever have to worry about anything related to diseases. There would be an easy way to find relief from back pain, and it doesn't require surgery. If I could do anything, there's a lot of things that I would do. If I could do anything, you know what would happen? The Vikings would win the Super Bowl. Because I love the people that I'm called to serve. And I'm not implying it would take a miracle. That's just... If you could do anything, what would you do? And you could come up with a list of all the good things you would do. And let's just chop off the first half, okay? Forget about the things you do for yourself. Just look at the good things that you would do for other people. You see, we would do that in a heartbeat. And I think a lot of us can can run into an issue. The tension is this. Well, if we would do those things and we could do anything, why doesn't Jesus do those things? If Jesus really can do anything... Fill in number one. Why doesn't he at least do more? Why do we have to come up with these lists of things and things and things? In fact, when you think about the time when you maybe wished for a miracle or asked for a miracle, that's something that actually bothers you to this day because you're wondering to yourself, well, why didn't God just give it or provide it or fix it? There are good things that we would do as people. Why can't our Father in heaven take care of them? from his perspective. And, and that's something that can either be an obstacle to faith. That's the reason why people don't even consider religion because, well, how can there be a good God if he doesn't just do these things that we know would be good and helpful? And for those, those of you who are following Jesus, maybe there was a miracle that didn't happen and it made your faith stumble. So what we're going to uh, discover today is we're going to look at another episode from Jesus' life. And in this episode, he's going to perform his first miracle. And as he does so, it, 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 John records it in such a way that it helps us understand the answer to this question. And the answer is that he has done more, and he promises to do more. And, and we'll see how that comes out in just a moment. We're, we're going to look at the very first miracle that's recorded that Jesus ever did. And it's recorded by a guy named John, who is one of the four uh, disciples, not one of the four, one of the four uh, biographers of Jesus' life. We have his written accord uh, still to this day. And uh, John was the oldest living apostle. And so it seems as at an old age, he decided, okay, I know other people have written down the account of Jesus' life. I'm going to make my own account and kind of just fill in what, what, what I've observed and what I've learned. And uh, this was the disciple that took care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, after Jesus was gone. And so maybe it was even later in life that, Jesus, uh, that uh, John and, and Mary, she would tell him stories of when Jesus was younger or these little things. And so John now sits down and he, he records this first parable or this first miracle of what Jesus did. And I know it's a common one that many of you have heard of before. If you grew up in church, if you ever went to Sunday school, you've heard this uh, miracle before. Um, and even if you, you haven't, uh, this is a, a very well-known one. So as we dig into it in just a moment, I just want you to momentarily set aside everything you've learned, everything you've known, because we want to walk through this account as John unfolds it for you. Because when you let him tell the story, it fills in so much of what miracles were really about and why Jesus, at times, seems like he doesn't do more. 
Now, before we jump into chapter 2, where the miracle is described, we're going to start at the very end of John chapter 1, because it's here that Jesus is just starting to gather his first disciples. And there's a few different names. There's at least six of them that he gathers by the end of this chapter. I'm just going to focus on one, a guy named Nathaniel. And what was unique about him was that some guys went to him and said, Hey, Nathaniel, we found the Christ, the Messiah. You know, the guy that God promised to Adam and Eve, he's here. It's been several thousand years, but he's here. And Nathaniel goes over and he sees them and he's kind of checking them out. And Jesus says, hey, Nathaniel, I saw you sitting underneath the fig tree, even though there's no way for me to see you sitting underneath the fig tree. I saw you before uh, your buddy went and told you about me. And Nathaniel's like, that's kind of creepy. Like, are you creeping on me? Like, do you have spies everywhere? Is there a spike? And, and so Nathaniel's like a little creeped out by this because it's like, how can he know this? He wasn't there. He didn't see me. But Jesus was giving him this little, little, little um, introduction, this little peek at what he was able to do. And so Nathaniel was amazed by this. He's like, how did you know that? That's, that's pretty cool. And then John responds to Nathaniel with this. Jesus responds to Nathaniel with this. Jesus said, if you believe because I told you I saw you under some tree, oh, Nathaniel, we're going to have some fun with you. You're going to see much greater things than that. It's going to be a, a lot of fun. Um, and so this is how the ministry of Jesus unfolded. Nathaniel was amazed by this little thing where Jesus knew something. And Jesus says, if you like that, just wait. Because there's more. And if you find yourself in a place in life right now where you're disappointed because Jesus didn't do something, I, I, I want to tell you right now, don't be disappointed. There is more. There is more. And John's going to unfold that as we get into chapter 2 here. This is how it unfolds. He's got about six disciples with him, and then on the third day, after gathering these guys together, maybe they're doing icebreakers or getting to know each other, and Jesus is teaching them. We're not sure what those three days were made up of. But after three days, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And we've kind of talked about this recently because we talked about Joseph and Mary being engaged in that time. And um, basically what it means is this, that when, when a wedding takes place, it's not really the vows in their context. The vows happened weeks or even months before. They already promised to be husband and wife. In their culture, they would walk down the aisle, say their vows, and then they'd like separate. They'd live separately until the house was ready, until everything was set. And then the husband would come and take his wife home to, live, to, to be together as husband and wife. And when that happens, there's a celebration, right? There's a feast, there's a banquet. And so that's what we see here in John chapter 2. Um, a husband and wife who had been promised to be married finally come together as husband and wife. They throw a banquet, they throw a feast. And in that context, in those days, sometimes these, these feasts could last for weeks, I'm sorry, for days, or even up to a week. Do we got any engaged people in the room right now? Because that just made you flip your boat, right? You're, you're trying to figure out how to afford one banquet for one night, but that these banquets would last several days, maybe even a week. And so in those times, it was very customary, um, especially for the poor families, that if you were invited to a wedding, you would basically bring your fair share of food and beverage to share with everyone else. They invented the potluck. So you'd come. You didn't want to be that guy who shows up and just eats everything and doesn't contribute. So they'd come, and, you know, they'd bring, they'd share, and then they'd have these organizers or these masters of the banquet 
who would organize everything and make sure it's set out in a timely manner and distributed properly. And so what happened is this, one of these weddings was going on. And Jesus' mother was there. She was invited to the wedding. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So now you've got a party of eight, all adults, going to a banquet. And something happened. We're not even told all the details, but John just gets right to the point in verse 3. He said, when the wine was gone, uh-oh. Now, when we think wine gone at a wedding, we think keg run out before the dance, right? The, or, you know, the bar is dry or whatever. And that's kind of what it would it mean back then, too, where wine was a natural part of celebration. And, you know, it was just part of the festivities. But it was a little bit deeper than that, too, because wine back then was also very effective for keeping water good. So if you just store a bunch of water for a bunch of people for six days, and that was their water, watering fountain or their bubbler, if that's what you like to say, that's not going to sit well in more ways than one. That's going to get people sick. And so what they would do is they would take water, they'd mix it with wine, the alcohol would keep it good, and there, there you go, you've got your safe drinking water. And so this wasn't just a celebration thing, like, oh no, the keg is gone and, you know, the party or the dance hasn't started yet. This was a real logistics issue for keeping the celebration going for any amount of time. And so when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now this was just a simple observation to Jesus. We don't know what all's behind it, and there's so many different ideas of what we should read into this. Maybe she was implying, hey, Jesus... We're a party of eight adults at this wedding. You need to make sure we didn't overdrink ourselves, right? You need to make sure that we're not those people. Maybe she was saying that. But from the context, what it seems to me is that she was telling Jesus, Jesus, I know who you are. I know what you're capable of. All I'm going to do is point out a need. I want you to help. But this is interesting. This is how Jesus responds to her observation. He says, woman, and, and that's not a derogatory way. It's not like woman, right? Um, if, if, we're in, if we were in England, we might say, my lady, right? It's, it's a sign of respect. It's, 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 it's adorable. Um, he says, woman, woman, why, don't, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, there's two parts to this, two elements to this. Why do you involve me? Why do you involve me? So there's a problem, and if she highlights a problem, what does she want? She wants it to be fixed. If you bring up a problem, you, that means that you want the fix. And so that's part of it. She says, well, we need to find a fix. Jesus says, well, why do you involve me with that? You want me to fix it? Is that what you want? There's always the fix. But then he brings up another point. He says, my hour has not yet come. Um, and if you have an hour planned for something, that means you have a plan. You've got a schedule, um, which means that there's more than just this moment. There's something bigger that Jesus is about. So there's two parts to every miracle, two parts to every miracle. Number one, there's the fix. There's always the person who needs to be healed, the person who needs more food, more wine, whatever it is. There's always the fix. But a bigger part of every miracle was focusing on the fixer. Number two, general observation. When you look at all of Jesus' miracles, number two on your sheet goes like this. Jesus' miracles were more about the fixer than about the fix. 
Woman, why do you involve me with the fix? My hour has not yet come. I need people to acknowledge who I am and why I've come. And Jesus must be thinking, I'm not here to be some master of the banquet for weddings. I'm not the wedding singer. I'm not here to provide wine for people who've run out. Can you imagine what people are going to say when they hear <laughs> that I can do that? And so Jesus is saying, why do you involve me in this? My hour, my purpose is so much bigger than this. I'm the fixer, yes. But I need it to be such a bigger thing than that. And I want to apply this to you. The application today comes in spurts here and there. The application for you is this. When you wished for a miracle, or when you prayed for a miracle, were you just praying for the fix? Or were you honoring the one who could fix it? For me, that temptation is so real just to say, God, I want the fix. Give me the repair. Make this better. You know what to do. Come on. You love me. You love them. This is what I would do if I could do anything. Why don't you do it? But when you look through the New Testament, as you look at Jesus' life, he wasn't just about fixing things. Because you know what? He could fix everything. It would all break again because this world is full of sin. He wasn't about fixing things. He was about being the fixer, the one who could fix things at a, at a deeper level than you and I could ever imagine, than those people at the wedding could ever imagine. He is the fixer, not just the one who gives out the fix. And maybe, maybe Mary, as she's pondering this, because she knows this, she, she's talked to Gabriel, right? I mean, she talked to an angel. Um, she knows he's the son of God. She, she knows what his, what his purpose is. And so maybe she's thinking, you know what? There is a way. We don't have to make this some big thing where everyone in the, the nation hears that you can make wine appear out of nowhere or whatever. And, you know, we're not just looking for a miracle. But there is a way for you to show kindness and compassion for this couple so that they're not humiliated on the day they come together as husband and wife. And so she turns, over, uh, turns aside to the servants and, and she says to them, do whatever he tells you. And this is so important because the servants are these people, you know, in today, at least in today's context, the servants at a, at a banquet, they're the ones wearing black, right? Because they, they want to blend in. They, they don't want to be seen. They don't want to be noticed unless they're bringing you your, your third uh, round of, not round, your salad, your food, and then dessert. There we go. Unless they're bringing you dessert. Because we're all looking for dessert at the wedding. Anyway. Um, so they're the ones in the background. The servants, they're kind of just there to, to serve, to, to be the, behind the picture. And she, she brings the servants forward and she says, Hey, hey, hey. I know you're not going to be out there talking to people. I just want you to listen to what this man is going to tell you. And I want you to do whatever he says. And here's what he tells them. First of all, an observation. Nearby, there stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each one holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, these, these stone jars were not for drinking. Um, and they, were, they weren't for hand washing either. So it's not like a sanitary station where, okay, wash up and then move on to the next part. Um, these were more for the ceremonial, like, sprinkling of, of things. And, and it would be part of a religious thing that you would go through. Um, in some contexts, they could also be used to wash feet, um, but uh, they were not meant for drinking. And so Jesus notices there's six of these stone jars, each one with a capacity of 25 to 35 gallons. And I'm not good at math, so you can do the math. That's a lot of capacity for fluid, isn't it? And so that's what 
is in the vicinity. And here's what Jesus told them. Jesus said to the servants, I want you to fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. 25, about 25 gallons each, filling it up, filling it up, filling it up. This one is full. Next one, filling it up, filling it up. Trip after trip, filling up these jars with water. And they have to be thinking to themselves, I hope no one drinks this. This isn't something you drink out of. And then their nightmare comes true. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, the one in charge of everything. And they've got to be thinking to themselves, what on earth is he telling us to do? And we're going to take this dirty water from these ceremonial jars and we're going to take it to the master of the banquet and give it to him. And he's going to say, why did you bring me this water? We're not going to serve this to our guests. Where did you get this from? And they've got to be thinking through all these things like, what in the world is he asking me to do? But sometimes that's what miracles involve. In fact, when you look at other miracles, they always involve people trusting Jesus. Like when Jesus told Peter he could walk on water, what did Peter have to do? Take a step. When Jesus told ten lepers that they could be healed, he told them, well, to be healed, you have to go show yourself to the priest. But they're like, we're not healed yet. Jesus said, go, show yourself. And they were healed. So many of the miracles called for faith. You know, people, there's this one account where these, uh, these men brought their friend to Jesus. It seems he was a quadriplegic. He couldn't move. And so they brought him to Jesus, but there was no way to get to him. So they climbed up on top of a house, cut a hole in the roof, and dropped their friend down. That doesn't sound good. They gently lowered their friend down through the roof in front of Jesus. And they looked at, Jesus looked at his friends, and you know what Jesus said? He said, what faith, what trust. And he told the man, get up, get up, get up. And he did. You see, so often these miracles, they involve an element of faith. Because Jesus can't heal someone if they don't have the faith to come to him to be healed. And that's what we see here also. These men had to take this water to the master of banquet. And what are they going to, are they going to be fired for this? Are they going to be made fun of? Are they going to be put on foot washing duty? Right? Here's what happened. They did it. The master of the banquet tasted, and it's so interesting the way that John pulls this out. He pulled this out as long as he possibly could to illustrate that this miracle wasn't some fireworks show. It wasn't like Jesus took the water and, you know, made this big old scene where he was making these noises and putting his hands in all of them and, or at whatever. It was almost as if they were just bringing this water, and John puts it in as late as he possibly can into the story. They were taking the... the the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from because that was not the purpose of this miracle. The purpose of this miracle was not to show people that Jesus could make water into wine. And we'll see what the purpose is in just a moment. Though the servants who had drawn the water, you bet they knew where it came from. They filled up those jars and they knew it was just water. This miracle was kept so quiet, so secluded, so on the inside. And yet this was one that, at least for those servants, it called for a a big level of trust in what Jesus was telling them to do. And that's the third thing I want you to remember from today. Faith was a prerequisite for most of Jesus' miracles. 
Um, if people were not brought to Jesus, if people didn't come to Jesus, if people didn't trust Jesus, he would have no opportunity to heal them or help them to begin with. Now, there are a few, a few exceptions to the rule, like when Jesus walked on water, or when, when Jesus did certain things, you know, that didn't require faith from anyone else. But when people would, would be helped by him, faith was often a prerequisite. In fact, sometimes when Jesus would, there was one time when Jesus walked into a village and said he was not able to heal many people, hardly any. Well, why not? Because they didn't have faith. They didn't come to him. And so here's the quick application for you. When you were hoping or wishing for a miracle, or when you were on your knees praying for a miracle, were you praying or hoping in such a way that it depended completely on him? Was it that your trust was in him, no matter the answer? Your faith was in him, no matter the response? Because faith is is often this byproduct, it's often this prerequisite for when you approach him for the miracle. And some of you still are like, yeah, I had that faith. I trusted him, I trusted him, but it didn't happen. I just want to remind you, don't worry. There is more. There is more. Here's how the account ends. The master of the banquet, he tasted this water turned into wine. He called the bridegroom aside. He's like, dude, I've done this before, right? I've seen weddings happen. I know how to organize them. I know how to run them. Everyone brings out the choice wine first. Like you amaze your guests with how great you are, how, how good the wine tastes. And you get that first taste, the second taste on their mouth, and they're like, wow, this is a really good banquet. You bring out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after when they've had too much to drink, and when they're like, I'm I'm done, I don't want to drink anymore, right? You save the cheap stuff for last. That's just the way things work. And now, now what do you think he's going to notice about this, this, this water that was changed into wine? He's like, wow, you really... You really took the cheap wine at the end to the extreme. I mean, this is wine? No. This is what he noticed. You've saved the best for last. It's not just that this wine kind of met the mark, and okay, we'll call it wine if that's what you want to call it, this watered-down whatever. No, this was legitimate, good-tasting, expensive wine. Because when Jesus is involved in a miracle, it's a miracle. Now, the, the most important part of this, there are so many details in this account that you might be wondering about, like, how, how did Mary interact with Jesus? Why did she, did she ask him or did she not ask him? Or what, when was it changed into wine? There's so many details we could wrestle over, but John makes it absolutely clear what the impact of this miracle was. Why did Jesus do it? And he gives us the answer in this last verse. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he did what? First of his signs through which he helped people. That's a fair way to end the sentence. First of his signs through which he showed people how awesome he was. First of his signs through which he shocked people into paying attention for a little while. Could be. Except when John looked back at all the miracles of Jesus, he says they really weren't about those things. And it wasn't really about fixing things either because anything Jesus fixes 
in the sinful world is just going to get broken again. This was the reason he did it, through which he revealed his glory. And when he does that, his disciples believed in him. The disciples, those servants, when they saw what happened, they said, oh my goodness, we've been with this guy three days, and he was able to do this. I mean, he talks a great game, but when he did that, our minds were changed immediately. That's what all of the miracles really did. They, they showed his glory. They, they, they gave proof of who he was. And interestingly enough, when you look through the New Testament, so often they're not called miracles. They're called signs. They showed people who the Messiah was, who the Son of God was. And they said, this is Jesus. This is God with us. And he wasn't just a miracle man to do miracles. He was this miracle man to show people who he was. And that he came for this bigger plan, this bigger purpose. And when his hour would come, people would know this was the Son of Man. And each miracle was a way that people would change their, their minds. But, 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 miracles never changed a person's heart. You look all the way back to the Old Testament, the, the, the Israelites, they saw miracles. Then they just stopped believing. Their minds were changed for a moment, but their hearts were hard. And you look at people in Jesus' day, he, he helped so many people, he fixed so many things, but it lasted a short time. People's minds can be changed and flip-flop back and forth. You know this. You know this. You know, so often we make that bargain with God. God, if you just do this miracle, I'll be changed. I'll follow you. I'll believe in you. But God knows you know, your, your mind might be changed for a little while, but not your heart. Your heart requires a greater miracle than anything that you'll see. It'll take so much more than water turning into wine. It'll take so much more than being healed. Much, much more than someone coming back from a terminal diagnosis. It'll take much more than that to change a heart. Here's where I want to give you an, an, an option, an opportunity to search your heart. And if you've been hoping for a miracle, if you've been praying for a miracle, I want to give you a chance, if you need to, to repent of the reason that you prayed for it. Because you know what? A lot of times it can be so selfish. We can try to bargain with God to get him to do what we want. Like his disciples, we can be so amazed by what we maybe see on Sundays or hear on Sundays or read in the Bible, but then our hearts go cold, hard. But there was one miracle Jesus did. That was more. Every miracle he did leading up to this one, he's like, if you, th if you thought that was good, if you thought that was great, just wait, there's more. There's more. Nathaniel, you think that was cool? Well, we're going to have fun. There was this one miracle that didn't change people's minds. It changed people's hearts. And it happened three days after Jesus died. The miracle of Jesus' resurrection was the one that transformed the hearts of his disciples. They wavered back and forth on his other miracles, but this one made them believers for life. They were willing to die months, weeks, years later because they were convinced that Jesus couldn't just change water into wine, but that he could change death into life. And that simply through him, that gift 
was theirs too. And they knew without a doubt that if he could do that, then he could do what he promised, which was to say to people, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You are loved by your Father in heaven. Now go love one another. Last filling. It was the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. That resurrection did more than any other miracle could do. And because of that, I'm going to leave you with this thought today. If you've been wishing for a miracle, if you've been praying for one, I don't want you to stop. I don't want you to stop. You've got a big God who can do big things, and he encourages you to ask for big things. Keep praying for it. I want you to focus on the fixer, not just on the solution. And I want you to use this as an opportunity to grow your relationship and your faith in the one who can do miracles. But I want you to know this too. Why doesn't he do more? If you're disappointed that he hasn't done more, I want you to leave today with the thought that, you know what? He has done more. He's done more than you could possibly imagine, and he has the power to do more than you could possibly ask. Next week, we'll see the story of Jesus continue as we get into part three. Let's close today with a prayer. Dear Father in heaven, at different times in life, we run into obstacles that we know are too big for us. Maybe it's related to health. Maybe it's related to finances. Maybe it's related to family or relationships. There are things that we know we cannot control. And those are the times when we find ourselves wishing for miracles, maybe even praying for them. And I pray that when those moments arise, that you would help us to to see the true nature of what your miracles were for, that they weren't to fix this broken world. They were simply to fix our eyes on the one who could fix it. And so in all things, in good times and in bad, give us the faith to turn to you and know that you've already done much more than we could ever ask or imagine through the resurrection, which one day we will all be a part of through Jesus. Thank you for that gift and for that peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.